If you brought a Bible this morning, please open it to Philippians chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to read along, you are more than welcome to use one of the pew Bibles from the seat back in front of you. In the pew Bibles, you can find Philippians 2 on page 921. In just a moment, we'll be reading verses 5 through 11. In 1896, a pastor in Topeka, Kansas, by the name of Charles Sheldon, wrote a novel called In His Steps. And he subtitled it, What Would Jesus Do? In the book, a homeless man has a conversation with Reverend Henry Maxwell, which results in Maxwell then challenging his congregation to not do anything for an entire year without first asking themselves, what would Jesus do? The rest of the novel then follows several members of the congregation as they take that challenge up. Unfortunately, due to a clerical error, Sheldon's novel was never copyrighted which resulted in a number of publishers printing and selling the book very cheaply. Because of this, In His Steps would go on to become one of the top 50 best-selling books of all time. Though Sheldon was not the first to coin the phrase, what would Jesus do, he certainly popularized it with his book. Flash forward almost 100 years to 1989, when a youth leader in Holland, Michigan, named Janie Tinklenberg read In His Steps, and was struck by its message, which she then shared with her youth group. She wanted to present them with the challenge of the book, and she thought maybe printing t-shirts with the slogan, what would Jesus do on them for her students to wear would help them to take the challenge seriously. Instead, though, she decided to go with printed wristbands since friendship bracelets were all the rage in the 80s. She shortened the slogan to the initials WWJD, and a cultural phenomenon was born. The bracelets caught on quickly and very soon spread far beyond Janie's youth group. And soon WWJD bracelets were everywhere. You can still buy them on Amazon, by the way. Wearing one was intended to remind you to act in a Christ-like manner, which is no bad thing, right? But there were really two problems with WWJD bracelets. First, despite their original intention, they quickly became a fashion statement, like the friendship bracelets that inspired them. They were worn simply because the wearer thought that it would make them look cool, and they had no bearing on the wearer's actions. But the bigger problem with the bracelets and with the whole idea of asking, what would Jesus do, is that the answer is entirely dependent on your perception of Jesus. It's wholly subjective. If you believe Jesus was all about love and inclusion for all people, regardless of their beliefs or practices, then your answer to what would Jesus do is going to be radically different than that of, say, a person who believes Jesus hates homosexuals and wants them all wiped off the face of the earth. Not true, by the way. We live in a postmodern age where my truth and your truth are both perfectly valid, but woe to the man who argues for the truth. So what would Jesus do is maybe not the best question to ask if we're striving to live in a Christ-like way. A far better question, and one that would encourage an objective answer, would be WDJD. What did Jesus do? That question turns us from our preconceived notions and points us to the Gospels for a written record of exactly what Jesus did in his time on earth. Such a question gets us away from guesswork and grounds us in the objective facts of Christ's life. So it's fitting that what did Jesus do is precisely the question that Paul asks in our text this morning as he holds Jesus up to the Philippians as the 
uh, perfect paradigm of humility. Let's read then Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of our God. As we've seen in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul has exhorted the believers at Philippi to unity. And he's explained to them that humility is the key to that unity. Now in verses 5 through 11, Paul holds up Jesus as an example for the Philippians to follow. As he does so, the first thing that we clearly see this morning is the heart of humility. The heart of humility. Now Paul tells us right at the start of this passage that Jesus was in the form of God. The Greek word used here does literally mean form, so kudos to the ESV for hitting the nail on the head. However, the Greek word also has connotations beyond that literal translation that can help us understand exactly what Paul is saying about Jesus. Now, when we in 21st century America hear someone talk about the form of something, we tend to think only about its outward appearance. If you have kids or grandkids, you're probably familiar with dino nuggets, which are just chicken nuggets in the shape of dinosaurs. If, on the other hand, this is your first time hearing about them, you already know exactly what I'm talking about without my having to explain to you that even though they're in the form of dinosaurs, they're really just chicken. They're not dinosaurs. Or take Legos. If I build an airplane out of Legos and show it to you, you would not for a second think that that was an actual airplane that could actually fly around. You would recognize right away that its form is an airplane, but inwardly it's just little bits of plastic all stuck together. When Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, he means something more than that Jesus outwardly looked like God, but inwardly was something less than God. The Greek word translates to form, but it really means something more like the outward representation of an inward reality. Picture a little boy who unsuccessfully jumps his bike off a ramp and falls down. We might look at his skinned elbows and his ripped pant legs and say, he's all boy, or he's a boy through and through. And in this case, his outward appearance perfectly matches the inward reality. His genetics and biology would attest to the fact that, yes, he really is 100% a boy. And that's more the sense of what Paul is getting at here in Philippians 2. When angels beheld him in heaven prior to his incarnation, Jesus didn't just look like God or seem like God. He really was God through and through. And that assertion is, of course, backed up by many other passages in the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 10.30, Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. In Colossians 2.9, Paul says, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Paul is saying very plainly that Jesus is God in every way, 
inwardly and outwardly. And then Paul goes on in Philippians 2 to say that Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus was truly God, fully God. He was and is God the Son from eternity past, equal in deity with the Father. But he didn't grasp that equality. The ESV, again, does a good job with the direct translation of the Greek term for grasped. It actually does mean to grasp or to lay hold of something. But again, there's more associated with the term than what a direct English translation can provide. Beyond just grasping, it more fully means to grab onto something in order to use it to one's advantage. What Paul is telling us is that Jesus didn't cling to his godhood for his own gain. He could have decided that as God, he wasn't going to do anything that would require him to lay aside his glory and leave heaven. That he would be satisfied to have every human being bow the knee and confess his lordship, even as he judged them all guilty of sin and sentenced them all to everlasting punishment. But praise the Lord, that's not what he did. Rather, Paul says Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, we should be clear on what Paul means by saying Jesus emptied himself. He does not mean that Jesus gave up his godhood in order to be a human instead, that he traded one nature for another. We know from the Gospels that even while Jesus was on earth as fully man, he was still also fully God because he displayed attributes that are God's alone during his life. We see Jesus display omnipresence in John 1, verses 47 and 48. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now we know that this means something more than that Jesus happened to pass by and see Nathanael sitting under the fig tree because of Nathanael's response in the very next verse. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now that's a weird thing to say to someone in response to that person just saying that they saw you at some previous time. If I walked up to Jordan right now and said, hey, I saw you walk in before church started. I would in no way expect him to then call me the son of God because of that. First, because I'd be lying. My back was to the door when he walked in. So what Jesus does in John 1 is offer proof of his omnipresence to Nathanael, which Nathanael recognizes, and it causes him to immediately recognize Christ's deity. In Matthew 9, Jesus displays both his omniscience, or his all-knowingness, and his prerogative to forgive sin, both of which are God's alone. Verses 2 through 7 of Matthew 9 read like this. And behold, some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. 
in Matthew 12, 25, and Mark 2, 8, and Luke 6, 8, and Luke eleven seventeen, 17, Jesus knows the thoughts of various people. How? He was and is omniscient or all-knowing. And we know in countless places, Jesus performs miracles. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He gives sight to the blind. He even raises people from the dead. All this proves that Jesus in human flesh was omnipotent or all-powerful. So when Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied himself, clearly he did not empty himself of his divinity. Rather, he emptied himself of his glory, of his prerogative to be worshipped. He emptied himself by taking the form not of a king, but of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The Jews of Jesus' day were expecting a Messiah to come who would be a conquering military leader, who would lead Israel into a golden age of prosperity and freedom as they successfully revolted against their Roman oppressors. Jesus could have come to earth to be exactly that. Make no mistake. He could have been born in a royal palace and had extravagant wealth and countless servants to see to his every need. He could have then wielded his influence and his physical resources to overthrow Rome, and the Jews would have recognized and celebrated him as the long-anticipated Messiah. But he didn't. He wasn't earthly royalty. He had no wealth. But the reality went far beyond that. The text doesn't say that he was a freeman. It says he took the form of a servant or slave. The Greek word there could mean either, depending on context. That word form here in verse 7 is the exact same word that we just saw in verse 6, when it meant that Jesus was truly and fully God. Now Paul uses it again here in verse 7 to deliberately set up a stark contrast. Jesus was fully God. He came to earth and was not just fully man, but fully a slave through and through. This isn't like one of those times you read about in Greek or Roman mythology where Zeus or Ares or whoever comes to earth in the appearance of a beggar, but they're really just a deity in disguise. Kind of like when you see pictures of famous people out in public wearing baseball hats and sunglasses trying to be incognito. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't wear the poverty and the lowliness of a slave as a, a clever disguise. That was legitimately who he was in his time on earth. He was born in obscurity to a couple of nobodies in sad little Bethlehem. And Matthew 8, a scribe tells Jesus he'll follow him wherever he goes. And how does Jesus answer him? He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. Luke 8 tells us that as Jesus went around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, he was accompanied not just by the twelve, but by a number of women who provided for them out of their means. Homeless Jesus had to rely on others to meet his needs because he had no material resources of his own. A slave in the Roman Empire didn't own anything. His possessions were all considered to be the property of his owner. Likewise, Jesus owned nothing beyond the clothes on his back. He was truly of the lowest station possible in that culture, in that time. So consider what this means then. God the Son willingly condescended to come to this earth and to take on human flesh in the lowliest of circumstances in order to rescue sinful man and reconcile him to a holy God. And the Father didn't drag the Son kicking and screaming out of heaven to be born on earth. 
The son didn't fight for his right to be recognized and rightly worshipped while wrapped in flesh. Instead, he willingly and selflessly left heaven and the worship of angels so that he might enact God's plan of salvation. Why? Because he was humble. He didn't just suddenly one day decide to start being humble. He didn't become humble when he got to earth. Scholars say that God is immutable, which is just a 50-cent word for unchanging. So the son didn't suddenly start being humble. He always was and always will be. It's part of the very character of God. Christ coming down into the world as a servant in order to rescue his enemies, people lost and ruined by the fall, is a true expression of the very nature and character of God. Remember Paul's command to the Philippians in the verses that immediately precede this morning's text. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is telling us here in our text this morning that this is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus didn't act out of selfish ambition. He didn't just look out for his own interests. But in humility, he took on flesh for our salvation. As Christ's followers, then, how can we do any less in our own lives? The same Jesus who did all of this for us calls us to do the exact same for others. Don't insist on your own rights or privileges at the expense of others. Don't act out of selfishness. Rather, be quick to value others above yourselves and to look out for their interests. Model your lives after the selfless heart of humility that your merciful and compassionate Savior demonstrated for you. As we continue to consider our text this morning, the second thing we see then is the handiwork of humility. The handiwork of humility. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.8 that being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That becoming obedient does not mean that Jesus was previously disobedient and that he changed his mind and started being obedient. He didn't flip a switch and go from one to the other. What it does mean is that he was already obedient, but he took that obedience to the next level, as it were, by becoming obedient to the point of death, and not just any death. He didn't die peacefully in his bed at a ripe old age. He didn't even get a relatively quick and painless execution like beheading. No, he went to the cross to suffer perhaps the most torturous and barbaric death that mankind has ever conceived of. Now, a lot has been said about the methodology of crucifixion, so I won't get too intricate in describing it. But it's good for us to be reminded just what our Savior suffered on our behalf, so I do want to talk about it a little bit. And crucifixion, as we know, entailed nailing spikes into the hands or the wrists of uh, a victim, as well as into their ankles or their feet, in order to pin them to a wooden cross upon which they would hang until dead. Driving the spikes into the wrists would likely sever the median nerve, which would cause intense pain to shoot through the victim's arms. Consider as well that Jesus was scourged prior to being crucified, so his back would have been a shredded, bloody mess, and that would have pushed against the wood every time he moved. But the real agony of crucifixion is the slow suffocation that the body eventually succumbs to. 
with much of the victim's weight being supported by their arms, their chest muscles are pulled taut, and it becomes difficult to inhale. Then exhaling requires the victim to press up with their feet, their pierced feet, putting all their weight on those pierced feet. That's why breaking the victim's legs, like the Romans did to the two men crucified with Jesus, would hasten their death. Breaking their legs would mean they were unable to push up, and they would be unable to exhale, and so they would hang there until they died, until they suffocated. Crucifixion, Crucifixion was a practice so savage and shameful that it was not spoken of in polite company. That seems weird to us in the 21st century, right? We've got social media that lets literally anyone talk about literally anything at literally any time. Nothing's off limits. But in the empire, it was an obscenity to discuss crucifixion publicly. It was a death so repugnant that it was generally forbidden to crucify a Roman citizen unless they were guilty of high treason. Crucifixion was saved instead for the lowest members of society, like slaves and disgraced soldiers. Jesus, having taken upon himself the form of a slave, fit neatly into this category. This was the physical suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. But far greater even than the physical pain, Jesus endured intense spiritual anguish. When we sing how deep the Father's love for us, we sing the lines, how great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. This lines up with Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'll be honest, I can't give you a comprehensive answer as to how the Father could forsake the Son without breaking the eternal fellowship of the Trinity. I suspect that's one of those aspects of the faith that we're not going to understand fully this side of eternity, like the Trinity itself. But I can tell you exactly why the Father turned his face away. It wasn't because God the Father couldn't bear to see his son suffering crucifixion. Rather, it was because the sinless Christ became sin on the cross for us to bear God's wrath in our place. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then Peter attests to the same reality in chapter 2, verse 24 of his first epistle. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, something that no one else has ever been able to do and could never do. Jesus was truly human in that he had flesh and bone. He had DNA and chromosomes. He got tired and hungry and sad. He was tempted in every way that we're tempted, but he was different from other humans in one key way. He didn't have a fallen, sinful nature. So even though he was tempted, he was still without sin. Out of all of humanity, from the dawn of time, Jesus was the one individual who had not earned God's just wrath. But yet he bore that wrath by taking our sins and our place in God's crosshairs. So the Father turned away from his only begotten Son. When Aaron blesses the Israelites in Numbers 6, he says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
the greatest blessing that Aaron could pronounce on the Israelites was that God would turn his face to them. It was a sign of God's pleasure in someone to have his face shine upon them. Conversely then, God's turning his face away would be the starkest sign of his fierce anger. And that's what happened to Jesus on the cross. Taking all our sin upon himself as he hung naked and bleeding on a Roman cross, the inconceivable anger and fury of a holy God rained down upon him. Why? So that by putting our faith in him, his righteousness would be credited to us and we would be forever removed from that terrible wrath. No matter what sins we committed in our past, no matter how depraved or immoral we may have been, no matter how grievously we may yet sin as long as Christ tarries, Jesus bore it all in our stead. He paid with his blood the ransom and redeemed us from our slavery to sin so that we would have the freedom to be slaves to righteousness instead, walking in the Spirit as adopted sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. And Jesus did all this of his own accord, willingly going through it all to be obedient to the Father. Scholars sometimes use the term passive obedience when talking about Christ's crucifixion. But don't mistake that for helplessness. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he couldn't do anything to stop what was happening. In John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus could have stopped the crucifixion at any point. He was fully God. But he humbly obeyed his Father's will in order to save us, giving us an example to follow. I like the saying, faith looks like something. We can't open up our hearts and show people our faith, but we can demonstrate the faith that we have by how we live our lives. And the same thing is true of humility, right? True humility looks like something. It manifests in how we treat and even think about other people. If we're truly humble, we will follow Paul's exhortation and Christ's example and will value others above ourselves, looking to their interests as well as our own. We won't just view people as commodities or as objects to be used to get ahead. Their needs, their feelings, their hurts will affect us. And we'll strive to help them, even if there's nothing we can do for them besides sit with them and pray for them. How often do you tell someone in need that you'll pray for them, and then you just don't? It slips your mind, or you get busy with other things, or you just don't feel like it. If we follow our Lord's humble example, we'll value others enough to lift them up to God in prayer, even as we strive to provide material help to them as well. That is the handiwork of humility. Finally, this morning, we see the honoring of humility. The honoring of humility. Since Paul's example, or his goal, is to present Jesus as the church's example of humility, we might expect him to end this passage at verse 8, with Jesus humbly and obediently going to the cross. But Paul goes on in verses 9 through 11 to talk about the outcome of Christ's humble obedience. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Greek here literally says God super exalted Jesus. It means God has exalted him to the highest possible degree. And how has he done this? He's bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name. The way verse 10 is worded, we might think that name is Jesus, but he already had that name. He was given that name when he was eight days old, and he was circumcised in accordance with Jewish custom. So, what is the supreme name with which God exalted Jesus? We sort of get the answer in verse 11. Every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That word Lord here is accurately translating the Greek word kyrios, which is the word used in the Septuagint, or the, the Greek translation of Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, to translate God's covenant name of Yahweh. The Jews, for fear of misusing God's name, didn't like to say it or write it. So when Ptolemy II commissioned 72 Hebrew translators to uh, make a Greek copy of the Old Testament, those translators translated the covenant name as Kyrios instead. It's also worth noting that in Philippians 2, 9, and 10, Paul borrows language from Isaiah 45, 23, where Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, says, By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Or, as the Septuagint reads, every tongue shall confess to God. This homage is transferred from Yahweh to Jesus in Philippians 2, so that every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Kyrios. Based on all this, we can conclude that the name above every name, the name with which Jesus is exalted, is none other than Yahweh. And bestowing this name upon Jesus, the Father makes it plain that Jesus is God, equal in power and authority with the Father. Paul reminds the suffering Philippians that one day their persecution will end when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in triumph. At that time, every knee will bow. Not just every knee on earth, but every knee in all creation. Every knee in heaven, every knee on earth, every knee in Sheol or under the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Yahweh. But this won't be a confession of repentance. This won't be one last chance for the unsaved to come to faith. It'll be too late for that. Rather, this will be the acknowledgement of the sovereign might and glory of our risen Lord prior to the final judgment. In several passages of Scripture, we see an angel of the Lord appear to someone, and that person falls to the ground as a knee-jerk reaction to the angel's splendor. How much more will every knee bow in obeisance when Jesus Christ is revealed in glory? Picture this. Really think about it. It won't just be believers who bow and confess. It will be every man and woman and child who has ever lived. On that day, Adolf Hitler and Osama bin Laden will bow the knee to Jesus right alongside every serial killer and rapist who ever lived. There will be no other choice as they come face to face with the utterly supreme majesty of our Lord. All will bow. All will confess but only the elect will be saved from the wrath to come. What an encouragement this would have been to the Philippian believers as they suffered for refusing to worship the emperor, 
they could rest assured in the blessed hope that their true Lord, their true master, would return and bring an end not just to their suffering, but to the suffering of all God's people. And there is the hope and assurance that one day, if we follow Christ's example of humility, we too will be exalted. Jesus himself in Matthew 23, 12 said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James and Peter both reiterate this in their uh, letters that they wrote to churches. In James 4.10 we read, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So the question becomes, how will God exalt us? Ephesians 4, 2-7 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is spiritually true now will one day be true fully and in all ways. We will be seated in heavenly places with Christ in the presence of Almighty God, who will pour out the riches of the grace of his kindness toward us for eternity. And we will also, in a sense, have the name of Yahweh bestowed upon us. I'm not a heretic, just listen. In Revelation 3, Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You and I will not be called by the name of Yahweh, but we will have that name written upon us along with the name of the new Jerusalem and the new name of our Savior Jesus, marking us as belonging fully and eternally to the one true and living God. What a glorious day that will be. But in the meantime, we are called to a humility that will promote unity within the body of Christ, a humility that will cause us to selflessly love and value one another. And we have a perfect example of what that humility looks like in Jesus himself. So as we strive to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, let's ask ourselves not what would Jesus do, but rather what did Jesus do? Let's pray. Oh, Father, make us truly humble. Bury the example of Jesus deep in our hearts that it would cause us to live our lives in a manner that lives up to that example, that promotes unity within your body, that pours out your love through us to our brothers and sisters. Father, may it be for your glory that this is done as we strive to live lives that are in accordance with your will, lives that honor and please you. We love you, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and continue worshiping with us as we sing Lion of Judah.